You are listening to Rav Cook on the Haggadah with Yiska Smith, a podcast series from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. For more original Torah content, visit elmad.pardes.org. Welcome to Jewish Soul Food, providing spiritual food and nourishment to the soul, where we may encounter the divine presence within and perhaps hear the soul's unique, still small voice, Hakol de Mamadaka, gently leading and guiding each of us on the sweet path of authentic living. Currently, we are exploring some of Rav Cook's illuminating insights on the Haggadah Shel Pesach. The focus will be on moving from the space of spiritual enslavement to freedom, from a place of scarcity to that of abundance, and from a limited consciousness to an expanded one. So in our last class, we learned, we explored the commentary that Rav Cook provided for us when we recite at the Haggadah, when we recite at the Seder, when we repeat the verse from Genesis 15:14, and afterwards they shall go out with great wealth. This was referring back to the promise that God made to Avraham at the covenant between the pieces, where he where that's the first time we learn retroactively that we would have this event of going into a land that's not ours enslaved by a people that were rather cruel and oppressive, but eventually we would go out with a great wealth. And Rav Cook's commentary explains, in order to understand the significance of this great physical abundance, he actually, in the beginning of his very commentary, quotes another verse from the very onset, from the very Erev Pesach, of when Hashem said to Moses in Shemot Yud Aleph Bet, Exodus 11.2, Daber na, please speak, ha'am, please speak in the ears of the nation, v'yishalu, and, and, and suggest, really urge them to ask of the Egyptians for their silver and gold. And the Peshat meaning, as we discussed, is so the celestial beings would never have to be concerned with Avraham up there watching everything happening, saying to God, will you fulfill the first part of your verse, that they will go into a land that's not theirs, a strange people in a strange land, and they in fact were oppressed. But now that they're coming out, where's the Rechush Gadol? Where's the great abundance? So of course, the Peshat has this very anthropomorphic, metaphoric understanding of Avraham. You can just sense he's waiting for the Hebrews, for Bnei Yisrael, to leave with this Rechush Gadol. And they're not ready to do that, because as Rav Cook uh, refers to the Bnei Yisrael comparing us at that time to prisoners. And when a prisoner is told, guess what? 
You could leave tomorrow. You're going to leave tomorrow, and you'll be able to leave with a lot of abundance. The, the typical reply back would be, I'd rather leave right now without with anything. I just want out. I just want to be free. So because of this, because of this, we were not commanded. Hashem did not command Moses to command the Jews. Rather, he used the word na, which is very seldom used. Please, please, Moses, urge them. Urge them to do this. And then the, the kernel, the real tamsit, the, uh, the essence of his commentary, was that, in fact, what Avraham was concerned about was really not that God would fulfill one part of the promise and not the other part. That's the Peshat. Rather, Avraham was concerned that once we came out of Egypt, we would forget what our mandate would have been, and that is to be a light unto the nations, like he was. And in order for him to do that, he had his own Rechush Gadol. He had physical abundance, which he used for spiritual purposes by always bringing people in to his tent and entertaining and providing food and drink. He gave a lot. He and Sarah gave a lot of their physical resources. And he wanted to explain this concern that Avraham had in that light that we would forget when we came out, we would still be thinking like slaves or like prisoners. We would forget why we're even free. So that's why it was so important that we come out with the Rechush Gadol. So just in summary, just to read the translation from Rav Cook's, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful uh, insight. I'll just read what he says. The reason Avraham would make this remark meaning, God, you have fulfilled one part, but what about the other part, is because his entire purpose, Hevra, in his life was to establish a nation aware of God who would proclaim God's great name in the world just the way he did. And in order to do that, to influence the nations, to be a light to the nations, we need to be mixing with the nations and how do we mix with the nations? In trade and commerce, in business, by being out there in the world. So Avraham, with his higher agenda, he requests that his descendants, after having undergone the lesson in humility, which we've learned could be used now in our relationship with God, that this very same people become accustomed to the global social interaction that will come about as a result of their desire to accumulate wealth. Yeah, so it's okay to accumulate wealth for the right reason, for the right reasons. Okay, are there any insights or questions on that piece before we move to our new piece? All right, so I bless you all and bless me back that as we go out into the world each day that we do acquire, in fact, a rechush gadol. We do acquire great wealth. Let's bless each other to be successful and to be able to use it for the right reason. As Lubavitcher Rebbe, Zechat Tzadik Levracha, would, would give the bracha every era of Rosh Hashanah for the year 
coming up, that we may we all be blessed, Beshefarav. He would say, Begashmiyut, or he'd say, Begashmiyus, or Baruchnius in the Ashkenaz, Begashmiyus, or Baruchnius, or Begashmiyut, or Baruchnius, Gam Yachad. He would always add the phrase, together. Together. So, <clears throat> moving further into another part of Magid, this is all under the section, the step called Magid, the telling. We now have a verse that's quoted that we repeat at the Seder table as we're telling the story. And now we're moving the quote, the verse is in Exodus, so it's hovering over that moment when Hashem is acknowledging to Moshe that in fact this is the time to get ready for redemption. We're no longer going to talk about it, we're now going to do it. Vayishma Hashem et kolenu, and God heard our voice. Kamashaneema, and then we quote at the Seder, how do we know that God heard our voice? From the verse in Shmot, Bet, Chafdalad, Exodus 2, 24, when Hashem is speaking with Moshe at the burning bush. I mean, actually, this, I'm sorry, this preceded the burning bush. This is when we, we see God in almost the third person. It's a narrative about what was happening, that the Hebrew slaves were groaning and moaning. And God heard the, God heard the voice, our voice. So the verse says, Vayishma'i alukim et na'akatam. Na'akatam is a groaning. <clears throat> and whenever I hear that word, I think of um, <clears throat> Aviva Zarenberg's commentary. I was privileged to sit in her class a few years ago when she was explaining the word na'akatam. It's so primal. It's like when an animal is so hurt, all they can do is this the squeal, a squelch. It, there's, it, it's beyond language. The pain was so deep, according to her understanding through different Midrashic sources, that all we could do was groan. Imagine in your own journey being in a place that's so difficult, that's so painful, that causes such breakage that all you can do is groan. You can't even do what the human being so eloquently is blessed to be able to do, and that's articulate a feeling with words. That's how primal this calling was that God heard. And then, when he heard that na'akatam, v'yizkor elokim et brito, that's when he remembered his covenant. Which covenant? The one he made 400 years earlier with Avraham. At Avraham, at Yitzchak, at Yaakov. And not only did he make it with Avraham, but it was made with Yitzchak and it was made with Yaakov. This verse right here is the pivotal point. This is the turning point. And two actions occurred here. We did something and then God did something. And Hever, in your own journey, this is so important to remember. We groaned, and then God remembered. 
So let's see what Rav Cook. Let's see how he explains this. Actually, it's not a commentary by Rav Cook. It's a commentary by one of his outstanding disciples, Rav Yaakov Moshe Harlef. And it's in Rav Cook's Haggadah. This was the foundation of the exile in Egypt, that the children of Israel had lost the ability to long. As long as we did not groan, as long as we felt that to be enslaved was acceptable, there was nothing to redeem. It's not really that God only remembered when we groaned. God remembered the whole 400 years, of course, because God is not limited by time and space. The word, when we see the, when the verse says, that when God heard our moaning and then he remembered, it's not that, oh, suddenly God remembered. It's that that's when him remembering what he said to Avraham became put into action. It became facilitated. The switch went on. And the switch went on because of our longing and our moaning and crying out. Now, a sign had been handed to them. And what was the sign? Pakod Pakadati. Pakod Pakadati means, I will surely remember. As we've discussed before, when he, when in the Chumash, in Biblical Hebrew, when a word is repeated, a verb, especially if it appears to be a verb, and it's conjugated a little bit differently, but it's the same verb, we translate it as surely, to add emphasis to the action. There are many interpretations beyond that, but we'll stay with the Peshat of. Pakod Pakadati means not only have I remembered, but I have surely remembered. Now, this was a term... And I provided on the second sheet the various verses. And I want to review these verses that provide the source for this, in fact, this sign that when the B'nai Yisrael would hear a person utter those words, they knew that this was the Redeemer. So let's jump first to the sources, then we'll go back to the commentary. Because you really do need, we need to just understand what the verses imply for us to understand the commentary. So, Yosef is about to pass away at the end of Genesis, Bereshit Nun, chapter 50, verses Chafdalad and Chafhei. V'yomer Yosef el and Yosef says to his brothers, Anochi met, ve'elokim pakod yifkod. I am going to die, and God will surely remember etchem, you. And then God will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And then he adjured, he made them swear, he caused them to promise, lay more, saying, Pakod Yivkod, Again, that phrase, pakod yifkod, God will surely remember etchem. 
And then you will bring up my bones from here. So he wanted to cause his brothers, he wanted them to promise that they, in fact, would bring up his bones from Egypt when, in fact, God would surely remember the promise he made to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and then bring us out of Israel. So he tied those two together. And the Pasuk uses the phrase, Pakod Yifkod, Pakod Yifkod. Then we have the Pasuk from our own, in, from our teaching today. Yishma Elokim et Na'akatam v'yizkor. There the word is God remembered from Zocher, not Yifkod, but that's okay because that's not part of the sign. It's just acknowledging, the Chumash is acknowledging that God heard the Na'akatam, the groaning, and remembered. And then, at this point, we jump to the burning bush. Now remember, Moshe was not brought up in a traditional Jewish home. So he had no idea when he was in Egypt, he was brought up in the house of Paro. And then we know he flew, he escaped. He fled for his life. So this whole time, he was unaware of this tradition from generation to generation, from Avraham to Yitzchak to Yaakov to Yosef, to Yosef's brothers, and then to their children of the phrase, Pakot Pakadati. He had no knowledge of this. He was not part of the transmission. And this is what God says to him at the burning bush. Go and gather the elders of Israel. <clears throat> of course, a note on the side. The elders did have the tradition. Lech asafta et Yisrael And what shall you say to them? Elokim Hashem, the Lord God, and say to them, Hashem Elokei Avotechem, the Lord your God, <clears throat> the God of your forefathers, near Ailai, appeared to me. Elokei Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the, the God of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And what did he say to me? Like Hashem is telling Moses exactly what to say. Pakod Pakadati, I surely have remembered etchem you. And what has been done to you in Egypt. That was the code. That was Hashem giving Moshe the code. So when he would go to the elders, and if you jump down, look at the very two verses later, the, the Rashi, the Rashi on that, that God said, and there's a typo, by the way, it's v'shamu l'kolecha, not v'yishmu l'kolecha. You see below the box, Right below the box, Exodus 3.18, God promised Moses, they will heed your voice. Why will they heed your voice? What, because Moses said, I had this vision, and God came to me and said, I'm here to redeem you? No. At that point, they would think he was a crazy person. You're going to redeem all of us out of Egypt? Impossible. But he said, God gave him the sign. Make sure to say, Pakod Pakadati. So Rashi says that God assured Moshe at the burning bush that the elders would heed 
Moshe's call because of their tradition from Yaakov through Yosef, through his brothers, that the eventual Redeemer would use the expression Pakod Pakadati. Now the Ramban adds to that, and he cites the Midrash that the reason the people would believe Moshe was not only because this was the sign, but as I had mentioned, he had fled Egypt and he would never have known the above tradition if it weren't for God telling him that phrase, Pakod Pakadati, except from a direct revelation. And then, if you look back at the fourth verse that we have in our text there, it actually happened. V'yaman ha'am, v'yishmu'u. And the nation believed, and they heard, ki pakad Hashem et b'nei Yisrael. That's why they believed Moshe, because they did believe that God remembered. Okay. All that is the argument for this remembering. However, there's still a question. How does that fit into the fact that the longing is what put this into action? There's a piece missing. Do you see that there's a piece missing? We have A, we have C, but we don't have B. And that's what this short but very insightful commentary teaches us. When they would once again be capable of longing, that would mark the time of the redemption. Why? Because of the double language of Pakod Pakadati. As I said earlier, the Peshat of any time we see in the Chumash, this double usage is always surely. But the rabbis, always many of the rabbis, like to go beyond that. The the P.S. Etzner, he's known for his discussing Hester Astir, I will surely hide. And he actually treats one of them as a noun, and he says, I will surely hide, I will hide the state of concealment. I will hide the hiddenness. This is another example of explaining it beyond surely. What this Rav Harlop says, this very predominant, very he was a main student, one of the outstanding students of Rav Cook. So we know, we can assume, it came from Rav Cook. When they would once again be capable of longing, that would mark the time of the redemption. Note the double language, he says. The secret consists in this double remembrance. It's not just that it's the code, so you'll know that this is the Redeemer. It's that this is the code, this is the sign, because you also have remembered You also, not only God has surely remembered, but you have remembered, you, B'nai Yisrael, the Avdei, the Avadim, the slaves. It's one day, it's like in your own journey. You wake up one day, or you go through the day, you meet a certain person, something happens, and you say to yourself, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is not supposed to be my life script. I remember five years ago. I remember ten years ago. 
what I had in mind, what my goals were, what my dreams were, what my hopes were. And that, what does that remembrance do? What does that do? It causes us to long. It causes us to long. So there were two forces here. There were two beings that will remember. Not only God, but B'nai Yisrael. Like, this is not for us. We're not supposed to be slaves. We're supposed to be free people. And that's what they groaned. It just wasn't the physical enslavement that hurt. We became so immersed in Galut for hundreds of years, according to most commentaries, 210 years, we actually got used to it. We thought it was normal. And then we remembered. And that's why we groaned and moaned. And that teaching of Aviva Zarenberg so succinctly, so poignantly expresses it was from such a deep place. And I can't talk for all of you, but I, I'm suggesting, I'm inviting you to look at your journeys. I know in my journey, I did have those moments. Oh my gosh, I am so far from how I thought my life would be. Not Latov. Not for the good. But this pain, this breakage, wow, this has got to stop. I need to do something. And that's when I personally moaned and groaned and called out. And then God remembered. It was like, ah, she got it. She remembered. Her own journey was not supposed to be this. Because none of our journey is supposed to be a journey of enslavement. We learned that from Ralph Cook in two, two classes ago, or three classes ago. We were not created to be slaves. So then he finishes by saying, the secret consists in this double remembrance, remembering above and remembering below. Divine remembering and human remembering. And if I may add, don't worry about God remembering. <laughs> God is hoping every day that we remember. Because his, her, its remembering will have no meaning if we don't. On an individual level, each of us, Hevra, each of us is handed this very self-same sign from Hashem to Avraham to Yitzchak to Yaakov to Yosef to his brothers to the elders right into our laps. God is assuring you pakod pakadati but do you tifkod do you remember will you remember Every longing. <laughs> it's playtime. <clears throat> Every longing is a good remembrance. It's a good remembrance. It's okay to long. Actually, it's more than okay. It hurts when we long, but that opens, that's the pivotal moment. So, I would like to share with you 
and actually challenge you and invite you to engage in a little back and forth. What is the difference between longing for something we've experienced and it has been taken away and longing for something we just visualize, we've never really had, but we've been told it's worth longing for? What is the difference? Imagine in your journey, wanting to reclaim something that's been taken away compared to wanting to acquire something that would be new. What would be the longing? How would it play itself out differently between the two? Could anyone suggest? Will anyone something, suggest? It's towards something. Pardon me? So if you're longing for, then you're moving toward. If you're long, if, if longing for something new, then it's, it's um, taking steps to move towards something. But longing for something old is holding back and remembering what was. Well, the re- and the remembering what was, in fact, causes the longing. <clears throat> Do you think there'd be an experiential difference in the longing? Yeah, I mean, you, how can you? I mean, it's hard to long for something that you don't know because you don't know what you're longing for. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's the essence of this commentary that mm-hmm. we, in our genetic, spiritual DNA, we all experienced freedom through our forefathers and foremothers, through the Avot and Imahot we innately, intuitively knew, we were programmed to know that at one time we had experienced this. That's so so to the point what you just said. Yes, we can desire something we have yet to experience. We can want it because we've read about it. We've heard of the people who have experienced it. Oh, wow, it would be nice to go, let's say, hiking in the desert or it would be nice to be able to visit Israel if I've never visited Israel because of how other people have told me the experience was for them. But do I long for it? I don't know. Maybe some people do. I think what he's trying to suggest here is the reason that there's a connection between the longing and the remembering is we could only really long to the point where it causes such pain not to have it that we groan and we moan because, in fact, we did have it at once. So it's, it's an experience of loss. Yes, yes. And that's what Hashem wanted us to feel was the loss because then he could redeem us from it. If we didn't feel the loss, there's nothing to redeem. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> There's a <clears throat> verse in Tehillim. Perik Samach <clears throat> Gimel 63. This is when David HaMelech, he is now at this point, he's in the Judean desert. He's running for his life. He's the victim of slander. You know, you have to go back and read the whole story, what happened, what caused him to have to flee, literally, from his family, for his life, from his nation, home. He felt so alone. And it's the famous words. <clears throat> it's the famous words in the, the second verse. 
that the Lubavitcher Rebbe would sing beautiful Tzama Lacha Nafshi. Tzama Lacha, my soul, Nafshi, my soul is thirsting for you. So he's physically in the desert, and now he's saying that my soul is thirsting for you. He's in a spiritual desert. Kama lacha basari. My flesh longs for you. Kama. Kama means kimiya, is to long for something. My flesh longs for you. Be'eretz tziya v'ayef blim mayim. In such a parched and thirsty land with no water. So again, the metaphoric usage of David HaMelech physically being in the wilderness of Yehuda, of the Judean wilderness, spiritually, he longed. That word kameya is so powerful. He longed to be back with God. Why? Because it says in the next verse, Cain, Bakodesh Chaziticha, Leot Uzicha Uchvodecha, because I have beheld your sanctuary. I have, I know what it's like to be intimate with you, God. And because I don't have it right now, this is what my soul thirsts for. You can just picture the imagery in the hot summer in Israel, in the Judean desert, when you're thirsty. Imagine that spiritually in your own journey, when you're spiritually longing and thirsty for a drop of water for a drop of what you recall was like when you were thirsty and you were able to just turn on a faucet. So all these are metaphors to transfer into your own spiritual lives as you discuss with each other at your Seder table what it means for you to come out of your own Egypt, out of your own Mitzrayim. So I bless you, not that I bless all of us that we feel pain, No, but I bless that you remember what your true innate mandate in life is, the reason for which each of you feel you've been created. And as we get involved and get distracted and get busy with the rest of our lives and we lose attention from taking care of that dream, that may you, in fact, do wake up one morning And realize that. And if it causes you pain, so be it. Let that be a sweet remembrance. And trust that God will help you. But God only will help you when you ask for it. Because that's God's way of knowing. Then there's something to help you for. So he's having a little bit of trouble with this. <laughs> I'm not sure how to put this into words, so I'm just going to babble for a while. I think, um, you know, I was just talking about this idea of belonging today, and uh, and long, and you know, when I think about longing it's really in line in terms of sort of a loss, right? You, you long for maybe somebody who was in your life, right? You long for that connection, that kind of connection. 
And, but the reality is, you know, they're not, they're dead or they're somewhere else and you've lost the connection, right? So that continued longing can be really an unhealthy thing, right? So where does the crying out to Hashem with a longing, whatever that longing is, where does it move from being not so healthy to, you know, a place where you can open up to the possibility of redemption? That's a, that's a quite an important, quite, it's a crucial, it's, crucial question to ask. It's what you're longing for. According to how we understand, how we've been understanding Rav Cook and his Perushim, the one common experience to all Jewish people that many of us have lost, that we in fact can long and hopefully will long to recapture, is to be free. It's not longing to recreate an experience with another person who's no longer here with us in this world. I mean, at times, I miss my mom, so much, and it hits me at, I, at the least expected times. And, but I don't feel that I'm longing to be with her. I miss her, and I know that I won't be with her till I cross over at 120 to the next world, or Mashiach redeems us all. So I'm not longing for something in the past in terms of being with her. I feel very close with her. I feel her presence. I miss her, though. I miss her. The longing that Rav Cook is talking about here, as his student also was explaining, is I long to be me. I was created to be me. Rav Cook uses such a powerful word. We, we used it several weeks ago in the very beginning of this. To be ne'eman la'atzmiyoto. To be faithful to one's essence. This is what I long for. This is what God wants me to long for. And why am I not ne'emanah? to my own atzmiyut? Why am I not faithful to that essence inside of me? Because of fear, because of shame, because of peer pressure, because of all the reasons that we experience in our lives. But we wake, God willing, we wake up, Be'ezrat Hashem. One morning, each of us wakes up and realizes, I'm not me. I'm someone else. I'm what they want me to be or he, or she, but I'm not true ne'eman. That word is so powerful when Rav Cook uses that. I'm not faithful to myself. And the part of me that I'm not faithful is not the ego self. It's the Tzalem Elohim, he says. The image of God that I was created in has been, has really been subordinated has really been <clears throat> classified as B, not A. 
and the people around me or the mores around me, the cultural messaging around me, begin to inform my narrative in, in place Aleph, Sug Aleph, rather than Bet. And God drops down, God forbid, to Bet, to, to secondary, not primary, Ikar and Tafel. This is what I long for, to recapture me. And that's the primary connection. And that's the primary connection, which in, in fact, this is why the Talmud explains that we in fact experience this in our mother's womb. You know, this tradition about how right when we're born, the angel comes and and hits us right above the lip and we forget all the Torah. That's part of a whole discussion in Talmud, in the Gemara. It's not just a wives' tale, so to speak. I mean, it's part of our oral tradition that for the nine months from conception to birth, we really did, in fact, that's what David HaMelech was talking about when he said, Cain, like I, I've experienced, it's a vision that I have. We long innately, if we let ourselves be quiet enough and focused enough to hear the Koldamamadaka, to hear that still small voice, she will urge us to, to move forward and claim that primary connection that we've never really lost. We've just lost the experience of it. <clears throat> this is the basis for the entire perush of all of, of everything that Rav Cook talks about in the Haggadah Shal Pesach. It's to reclaim that which we already had which is to be a free person, to be free, to be whoever it is we believe God intended us to be. It's a very different kind of a longing. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you for, for sharing that. <clears throat> Yisco, would you say that reclaiming that primary connection would lead to making the external connections that are then that bring satisfaction and contentment. In other could, words, how, how could, are the... How are could the, speak up just a drop and repeat that, if you would, please? If we make that primary connection by being the authentic person that we were brought here to be, would you say that that can also enhance the external connections that we then have and fulfill this longing? Maybe the external longing as well. So what's the what's the connect? What's the relationship there? Is there one? <laughs> There's a profound, profound connection between the two. The one of the basic, according to the principles in nonviolent communication (NVC) or compassionate communication, one of the basic needs that all human beings share in common, regardless. Just take grab two humans from any place in the world with your eyes closed, so you don't know what they look like and where they are. One of the basic needs we have is to connect with another person. 
we were created to connect because the innate primary connection with God, with our own, and the, that connection is not with the theology or this belief of God, something outside of us. It's the godliness inside of us. It's a very intimate, visceral, eminent experience is expressed outwardly in how we connect to other people. Rabbi Shlomo taught so many times, if you think you're connecting to God, but you hate humanity, like you can't get along with the people, you just don't see anyone having anything worth redeeming, everyone bothers you, you're not connecting to God inwardly. If you connect <clears throat> the inner connection, just as inner beauty is expressed by outer beauty, people who feel ugly inside can wear the nicest clothes, have the nicest jewelry, have the nicest well-appointed homes, and you feel an ugliness around them. And people who are sensitive to energy can see the suffering, can feel the pain. And people who feel inwardly beautiful, a sense, to quote again, Ralph Cook, the, the greatness of royalty, the greatness of sanctity, of being kadosh, the loftiness of that my essence is a part of the very, my very creator. The beauty that that's associated with. I don't have to wear the most expensive outfit or the most precious jewels. Whatever it is, outwardly manifest something inwardly. <clears throat> this is a basic principle in Jewish mysticism from the Zohar that the whole physical world, the whole physical world, everything you see from sunrises and sunsets to mountains and valleys and oceans and forests and every color of the rainbow flower is manifesting something that you can't see, something that's not physical. So there's an innate, it's like a symbiotic, to Zetului uh, Bezeh, one really depends on the other. Outer beauty, outer connection, how we understand and experience our lives in the physical world is very much an expression of how we are experiencing our inner world. To quote in the book from Reb Simcha Bunim, The Quest for Authenticity, how we trace the footprints of the divine within us. If we're tracing those footprints of the divine within us with grace, or to use the pasuk, with chen, with chesed, with compassion, if that's how we go about tracing the footprints of the divine within us, that's how we are engaging in relationships outside of us. Because really, really, in the real way, may I just really challenge me and you and me, there really is no such thing as an outside external connection. That doesn't exist. All connections are internal. Just they're manifested outwardly. It's like the P.S.S. and the Rebbe said, don't make the mistake 
of saying that the body is different from the soul. <laughs> of course, that's in response to all of us always saying we have a body and we have a soul. So in one of his teachings, he said, we are only soul. It's not that we have a body and the body has a soul. We are souls. And the soul has an outer dimension and an inner dimension. The outer dimension is our body. But what is the body? The body is our soul. So all these external connections that you have in your life, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, significant others, husbands and husbands, wives and wives, parents and children, parents and grandparents, work colleagues, community members, all these what we call external relationships are all outgrowths, are all manifestations, are all levushim. They're all expressions. They're like garments that you wear of something that's expressing what's going on inside of you. Yeah. Why are people afraid of each other so much at times? We're each other's mirrors. And when we see someone who's attempting to authentically connect with us, because they're coming from a place of authenticity. To many people, that's frightening. It's very, very frightening. Because that mirror is showing to that person that they're not connecting inwardly to their own innate essence. So yeah, we need a lot of compassion and a lot of patience for other people's coming out of their Mitzrayim. But we don't need so much patience for ourselves to come out of, out of our own Mitzrayim. And we learn that from a word that we're going to discuss, not this week, but next week. Yes, have lots of patience for all the external connections of everyone in your life that you encounter who's having trouble connecting to you. <clears throat> But when it comes to you connecting to other people, if you feel there's a barrier, it's a sign to go inside and discover a deeper part of yourself. Yeah. And that is a coming, that is a Yitziat Mitzrayim. I will tell you, that is a Yitziat Mitzrayim. It's, uh, I could just share with you experientially going to all the different audiences I go to, walking into rooms that I've never been to before, where I don't know anybody, and to sense a connection is such a bracha, is such a blessing to be able to connect with people I have no history with. And because that's how we've been created, we've been created to be that. That's life as normal. That's really life as normal. That's the most normal experience that a human being can ever long for. 
And why why do we long for it? Because we did experience it. Okay. I, I hesitate to move to the next section in light of in light of our time. I want to give it its due. It's a beautiful commentary. It's an it's <laughs> I almost wish it were next week right now, so we could just go further, but but I can't. I can't. So in closing, do you have any any other gosh, your questions today have just been so so deep so deep so heartfelt just make a comment two comments thinking about this I find that sometimes given my whatever space I'm in it's sometimes easier to interact with people that I don't have the authentic relationship with because it's just stay on the surface and get on with it but there's certain people that I know I'm authentic with it's almost I, I can't to have the energy to pick up the phone and I'm not always in the place where I can, I know that person's going to see right through me and they're going to expect an honest conversation. And I don't always have the energy, you know, for that kind of authenticity. Um, I, I'm not, it's not a question. It's just a comment. I find sometimes like my sister, I know she's trying to call me and I haven't been able to call her back because I know it's going to be the conversation that I have, I have to build toward and I'm just not there yet. You know, on the other hand, when you're in that space of trying to be more authentic with yourself and there's people around you who are not there, it can be frustrating. So I appreciate the comment about patience. Yeah. Yeah. So if I may re- respond to those two eloquent insights, why is it so easy just to go to a park bench? You know, that typical pedestrian uh, example of, you know, I can sit on a park bench at Central Park, New York, or here in Gonsaker, and who's ever sitting next to me, I can be totally authentically me. It doesn't mean I have to share my deepest secrets, but there's no screens, there's no veils, there's no filtering. Because there's no fear. There's no fear of rejection. Because I really don't even know this person. So I don't have to reveal my inner, inner, inner. Being authentic, being authentic does not mean revealing always the deepest part of oneself the Kadashim of one, the Holy of Holies, to just everybody. It just means whatever we are revealing is in fact a part of our essence. It's so easy to do that with a stranger because there's no fear of repercussion. With your sister, there's fear, there's worry, there's anxiety. So, in the name of authentic language... I'm not sure you're asking for a suggestion, but I'll just throw one out to consider perhaps. The most authentic expression perhaps you can share with her is, so-and-so, I received your calls, and right now I'm not in a place where I can speak with you about this. It's that difficult for me. <laughs> and that that is your authentic you and ask the person and say please respect my need right now for not continuing into a dialogue 
but I do want to acknowledge that I received your, your messages. I'm just not in a space right now. And what you've done is you've protected yourself authentically. You've been the real you because you've expressed your truth to this person. Now, you could sit next to the stranger on the park bench and go on for two hours of everything you would have liked to say to her. <laughs> I did that on the airplane one <laughs> <laughs> You know, someone did that with me too. And I wanted to read this book. And finally I said, I, I, I see you have so much to tell me and it's so important. But you know, I hardly ever get to have time by myself to read. Could you give me just five minutes and I'll get back to you? This is like, you know, these 14-hour flights from L.A. So five minutes is not exactly, you know, asking for a lot. But, yeah, exactly. On a, Whoever sits next to you on a plane. And we always wonder, who's going to sit next to me? <laughs> yeah. Okay, Hevra. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. The beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's so true. Uh you know, be in, claim your independence to be a free person and then use that as your barometer, as your metric in how you go about your external relationships. Okay, I bless you all with a very real week of exploring and longing and recapturing all that which is really your own. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for downloading this podcast. For more original Torah content, visit almad.pardes.org.